Great indeed is God's faithfulness. And yet the psalm we look at this morning questions that very thing. So if you'd open your Bibles to Psalm 89, while we turn there, there are two more announcements. I knew there were more that uh, needs to be made. One, today, for the second week in a row, um, we will not be having our normal ABFs. We'll be having a um, joint ABF in here with missionary Jai Pandey speaking and hearing from him. But I do want to let you know that despite the fact that two weeks running, we have not had ABFs next week, we will in fact be having our standard ABF, so please don't get used to the new schedule. Um, Psalm 89. This is the last psalm of book three of the Psalms. If we can get the uh, PowerPoint up, that would be a blessing. And... um, Book three of the Psalms really focuses on lament, specifically lament over the decline of the monarchy. Um, the first two books called the books of David, because of the heavy Davidic authorship in them, come to a close with thus end the prayers of David. And then in book three, and the compiler who arranged the book of Psalms is sort of going from this Davidic peak now to the decline of the monarchy. Book four's emphasis will be sojourn in exile, mirroring the Babylonian captivity. And so this final psalm in book three, and especially the psalms that open and close the books, are significant in their placement. This really is the, the pinnacle lament, confusion, if you will, anguish, over the apparent failure of God's promises to David. What makes it all the more interesting is that you don't even get a hint of that for the first two-thirds of the psalm. This is a 52-verse psalm, and it's not until we get to verse 38 that we get a hint that there's anything wrong. Um, I've got a PowerPoint here, which I hope will be a blessing. Um, If you'd like a copy of it, um, you can send an email to Renee, and she can get that to you. Because we have so much ground to cover, the psalm is so large, uh, I've got all the additional scripture references put up here for you to look at. Let's just read Psalm 89. Let's just read Psalm 89. Covenant promises celebrated and apparently broken. And as we read it, just consider the uh, condensed outline. First 37 verses, a celebration of the Lord's eternal covenant with David, and then 38 to 52, a lament over the present failure of David's covenant. Psalm 89. A maskeel of Ethan the Ezraite. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations, Salah. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness to the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him? O Lord God of hosts, who is as mighty as you are, O Lord? With your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth is also yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand. High your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day, and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor, our horn is exalted, for our shield belongs to the Lord, O King, to the Holy One of Israel. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one, you said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. 
I've exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him so that my hand shall be with him, established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him. And in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall stand firm. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes, but I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne, as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies, Salah. But now you have cast off and rejected You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword. You have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame, Salah. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol, Salah? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old by which your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. I think in reading that you see the tension You see the tension. The first 37 verses extolling who God is, extolling his faithfulness, extolling his steadfast love, and then in detail laying out God's promises to David, the Davidic covenant. And then at this peak of praise, he turns to look at the present reality around him. Um, We're not exactly sure what the circumstance um, Ethan the Ezraite is responding to, Um, I think it likely the Babylonian captivity. And and regardless of what his specific circumstance is, it's clear that the compiler of the book of Psalms places it here at the end of book three to correspond to, to speak to the Babylonian captivity, which is when the nation of Babylon gathered around Jerusalem, tore down its walls, killed the Davidic king, took his heir away into captivity, destroyed the temple, and from the vantage point of most Jews, God's promises were broken. And this is the tension that Ethan is dealing with. And so in this psalm, we're going to look at covenant promises celebrated and covenant promises apparently broken. And we're going to move quickly, 52 verses. There is no way that we're going to go verse by verse, word by word, line by line. What I want to try to show you, though, is the same way that a a score of music has a crescendo and has ups and downs. I want to get the, the pulse of this psalm, and I want to try to deal with this tension. What God is showing us here, and what I hope we will learn, is how do we as his people deal with the apparent, and the key word here is apparent, inconsistencies between what God promises, what God says, and what happens. And God recognizes that that will challenge our faith. Some of the greatest 
struggles and trials in our faith will be reading in God's word what he promises and then experiencing in our day-to-day lives what is happening. And God has not left us alone in that anguish. He has given us this psalm to show us, to teach us, to sing to him, to cast our anxieties upon him. So if you follow along in the notes, we will begin looking at Psalm 89. And the first four verses function as a sort of introduction of the uh, theme of the psalm. And they lay out the major theme. And the, and the first section, verses 1 to 18, focus upon this covenant with David is founded first and foremost upon God's person and character. And the first four verses in particular give us the major theme of this psalm. There are key words here that jump out. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said steadfast love will be built up forever in the heavens. And you will establish your faithfulness. You have said I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever. And build your throne for all generations. Salah. Now there's sort of a summary. And the key words if you look are this. Steadfast love, which appears in the first line and the second line. And this notion of steadfast love is covenant loyal love. That corresponds to that word covenant. God's chesed, his special love for his covenant people. God loves the whole world, it is true, but his covenant love, his loyal love, his gospel love is reserved for his people who know him by faith. And that's a key word in this psalm. The next key word we're going to look at is faithfulness, which references God's trustworthiness, God's integrity, God's honesty. God is faithful. God keeps his word. And that shows up here. Faithful, faithful, and I have sworn, all referencing God's integrity, God's veracity, his trustworthiness. And the third word that shows up over and over in the psalm is forever, forever, all generations, forever, forever and for all generations. And so in the opening four verses, we get the major theme. We're going to be looking at God's promises to David with an emphasis on his covenant love and his trustworthiness and this eternal aspect to God's promises to David. That that really is the key concept that he's stumbling over. These promises were forever. So how can they come to an end? And that is what he is wrestling with as he goes through this psalm. Next, we see, after the key themes, a series of verses focusing on God's power and majesty are above all in heaven and on earth. And first, he turns his attention to praising God in the heavens. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? And he's, he's just extolling praising, celebrating the greatness of our God. Um, the, the heavenly beings probably referring to angels or angelic powers. And God is above and beyond and alone in a class by himself in his greatness, in his power. And then starting in um, verse um, 9, he focuses on the earth. You rule the raging seas, When its waves rise, you still them. You crush Rahab like a carcass. Rahab probably referencing either Egypt or just sort of the sea itself. It shows up in a couple of Psalms um, and it's closely tied with the sea and or Egypt, possibly referencing the Exodus. The heavens are yours. The earth is also yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. He is just praising and extolling God's greatness. This God who made a covenant with David, before we look at the covenant, we're looking at this God. And he is great, and he is awesome, and he is powerful, and he is without peer, and he rules in heaven, and he rules on earth. And then we take a look at his greatness, especially seen in the care of his people. We've seen God's greatness in a sort of universal scope. And now... Verse 15, we look at God's greatness in reference to his covenant people, Israel. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day, and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength, and by your favor our horn is exalted, for our shield belongs to the Lord, 
our king, the Holy One of Israel. And what, what Ethan is saying, Ethan the Ezraite is saying, is there is no blessed place to be than to be God's people. The nation that is God's people is a favored nation. They are blessed. They know him. He is their shield. He is their defense. And he's just celebrating that. And again, not a hint of the, of the trouble that's coming in this psalm. Just praising God for who he is. Praising God for who he is specifically to them. And now we turn and take a look at God's eternal covenant founded upon his own person and character and now upon his unbreakable word and covenant. And before we go any further, we have to take a detour, but the text will be up here, so you can stay right there in Psalm 89, to 2 Samuel 7. This next section of the psalm really is an exposition of God's covenant promises to David. And just to remind you of the setting, David is at peace, he's blessed, and it occurs to him that he lives in a mighty palace, and yet God's ark dwells in a tent. And so he sends for Nathan the prophet, and he says, Nathan, I want to build a house for God. And Nathan's pleased by this, but the Lord responds to Nathan and says, oh no, you're not going to build a house for me. I will build a house for you. And in 2 Samuel 7, we read this. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, from your own, who shall come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is, this is the Davidic covenant. And if you remember way back when, in last August, when we started looking at the Psalms, Psalm 2 picks up on this language as well. I will say to him, you are my son. He will say to me, you are my father. And he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Psalm 2 talking about this, this Davidic promise and the worldwide kingdom that David's son would have. And so the, the, Ethan is very familiar with this passage. You'll see that the next section of the psalm really is an exposition a treatment of this passage. And so in verses 19 to 27, Ethan's going to draw three points about this Davidic covenant, that they are unconditional covenant promises. And the point is this. Some covenants are conditional. If you go to the covenant at Sinai, or the law covenant, there's a you do this and I do that. And if you fail to do this, then I'm going to do that aspect to the Sinai, the Mosaic Covenant. If the people are faithful, they will dwell securely in the land, they will have economic prosperity, they'll have many kids, they'll dwell at peace. If the people are not faithful, then all the curses of this book will come upon you and I will drive you from the land. It's a conditional covenant. But here, David hasn't done anything. And the Lord doesn't require anything of David. He's just making a promise to David. The same way that when he appeared to Abraham, he just said, I'm gonna bless you, I'm gonna make you a blessing. It's an unconditional covenant. God just makes promises to David with no um, reciprocation on David's end, no, no, no give and take. Just here's what I'm going to do for you, David. And three things to highlight in this covenant with David is first, total military success over enemies. Total military success over enemies. And we see that highlighted there. I have found David, my servant. With his holy oil, I've anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. And this is the aspect that Psalm 2 picks up with. He will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And so one of the promises of the Davidic covenant, total military success. Secondarily, we see a special relationship of sonship with the Lord. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him. And in my name shall his horn be exalted. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. 
And what this is saying is that, that David's heirs, the Davidic kings, are going to have a special relationship as God's king for Israel on earth. They represent him to the people and that he will put his love on them. He will be in a relationship with them which is special and unique and unbreakable. And thirdly, we see that there's a promise for a worldwide kingdom. My faithfulness and my, uh, sorry, in my name, his horn shall be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers, which is talking about scope of this kingdom. I'll make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So it may not be the only kingdom on earth, but it will be the highest kingdom. It will be prominence. You could say that this Davidic son will be the king of kings, even from this. And all this, the psalmist celebrates these unconditional promises. And next, he turns his attention to the unbreakable promises of the Davidic covenant. There are three of them. Unconditional, next, unbreakable. First, this covenant is going to be death-proof. Death-proof. Look at verses 28 to 29. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever. My covenant will stand firm. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of heaven. And explicitly in the second Samuel passage, what the Lord says is, I'm going to raise up your son after you and his son after you and his son after you and his son after you. And, and this, this cycle is going to go on. Death will not break this covenant. It's not just going to end with David. Um, and we know it ultimately gets to Jesus, but it doesn't only have Jesus in view. Otherwise, there wouldn't be any words about if your children sin, I will discipline them. Um, specifically, the, the one who will build a house for, for the Lord, at least the most immediate recipient of that promise, is Solomon who builds the temple. And so this covenant is death-proof. It, it can't be ended by death. It doesn't just tie to David, but to his descendants. And the psalmist draws that point out. Next, it's sin-proof. It is sin-proof. And, and here we see, and again, he's just quoting directly um, from the Second Samuel passage. Look at verses 30 to 35. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my covenants, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes but I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. And what this is a promise of is that if David's descendants are unfaithful, the Lord will discipline them but not reject them. And he makes an oath, he swears and what's in view, and named specifically in 2 Samuel, is Saul. Remember, the Lord made Saul king, and the Lord gave his spirit to Saul. And as Saul was unfaithful and sought his own glory, first he loses the kingdom, then he loses the dynasty. And the Lord takes his Holy Spirit from him and sends a, a harmful spirit to him. And David witnessed this firsthand. And so the Lord is reassuring David when he makes this promise, I won't do to you or your descendants what I did to Saul. I, I will discipline faithless Davidites, but I will not remove my steadfast love. I will not break my covenant. I will not end it. So it's sin-proof. It's death-proof. Sin-proof. And third, we see it's eternal. It is eternal. Verses 36 and 37, it is as certain and lasting as the sun and the moon. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne, as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. And so just sort of to recap here, as we're about to turn the corner, um, Ethan has praised God, first setting up in the first four verses the major theme, God's steadfast love, God's faithfulness, and his covenant, and this eternal foreverness about it. And then he starts just with God being great in the heavens, and then God great in the earth, and then God especially great to his people, and then sort of zooming in even further. It's kind of like when you see those wide-angle camera lenses looking at the planet Earth, and they start zooming in, and they start zooming in, and they start zooming in. It starts out with God in the heavens, and then God on Earth, and then God to Israel, and then God to this one person named David in Israel. 
zooming in God's greatness and faithfulness. And then a detailed exposition of God's covenant to David of military, unstoppable military might, special sonship relationship, a worldwide kingdom, and a covenant that cannot be broken by death, that cannot be broken by sin, and will last forever. I mean, just notice the stress of that. And he praises God for this without any faltering, without any hesitation, and then turning on a dime, he begins to pour out his heart and lament to the Lord for what he sees in front of him. And, and this, is, this is what's so heartbreaking with the psalm. You don't even see it coming until it, just verse 38, and there it is. Lament over the present failure of David's covenant. And he just starts out by observing that the covenant promises appear to be broken. The covenant promises appear to be broken. Um, starting off that the Lord has rejected his anointed and his covenant. Verse 38 to 39a. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. That word for renounce just means to despise, to look upon with contempt. It doesn't mean that God is, it's not charging God with breaking the covenant, but rather with um, looking on it disdainfully. This does not appear to be a covenant that the Lord is cherishing or prizing anymore. The Lord has rejected his anointed in his covenant. Secondly, the Lord has not defended his anointed. Verses 40 to 43. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You've exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all of his enemies rejoice. I mean, remember, he was supposed to have um, unstoppable military superiority. Supposed to have that. And instead, his foes are exalted. And I want you to notice through this entire list that, that Ethan recognizes the sovereignty of God. Ethan does not take the easy out. See, sometimes when calamity comes, the easy out is to say... The Lord had nothing to do with it. God only does nice things. God only does happy things. And whenever bad things happen, well, that's Satan, or that's just the world, or that's God standing back and being a gentleman, or whatever. No, Ethan, you did this, God. You did this. Notice those second-person pronouns. You, you, you. Emphatically. Ethan believes in the sovereignty of God. I believe in the sovereignty of God. That God rules over human history. And whatever's happened to Israel and Israel's king ultimately comes from the hand of the Lord. And that's not the way out. That's not the way to resolve this tension. The Lord's in control. And it's the Lord who has not defended his anointed. It's the Lord who has exalted his enemies. And it's the Lord who has destroyed the kingdom and the glory of his anointed. Verse 39 and 44. You have defiled his crown in the dust. And then in verse 44, you have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. And it is the Lord who has ended the dynasty of his anointed. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. And in the final round of the Babylonian siege on Jerusalem, and Babylon sort of came in three waves. The first wave, they took the nobility. That's probably when Daniel got taken. And then they set up Israel as a vassal state, and Israel revolted and resisted, and so they came back and, and, and took some more. And then again, um, Zedekiah tries to reach down to Egypt to make a treaty, to try to get some help. Babylon catches word of that, and that's the end. They flatten Jerusalem. And they kill, Nebuchadnezzar kills Zedekiah. What he actually does is he kills his three sons in front of him and puts out his eyes so that the last thing that he sees is the end of his line. And then he takes him off to Babylon where he dies. It's pretty rough. And, and we don't grasp how rough that is because we aren't used to this notion of kingdom and rule like they were. But I would suggest to you that the anguish and the confusion and the vexation that the Israelites had over watching Jerusalem be destroyed, watching the apparent end of the Davidic line, would be about akin to the confusion of the disciples after the crucifixion but before Sunday. 
We know what God promised. We know who he was. We know who he said he was. We know what he did. How can it end this way? How can it end this way? Now, Ethan knows that God promised to discipline his people, but I don't think it even entered into his mind that the discipline that the Lord would give would be this severe, this devastating. Read the book of Lamentations. It's it's Jeremiah just not getting it. Broken, undone over what the Lord has caused to happen to Jerusalem, to the temple, and to the king. So the Lord has ended the dynasty of his anointed. There is no Davidic king sitting on the throne. There is no kingdom. There is no land. The people are taken away. And this leads him then to ask two perplexed questions and utter two um, desperate pleas. Verses 46 to 52. First question he asks, how long? How long will this continue? How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Apparently he feels that God is not answering his prayers. God is not listening. How long will your wrath burn like fire? We don't know how far along this was when this was written. The Babylonian captivity lasted 80 years. And yeah, that's a long time. Most, most people are going to be dead at the end of that. He cries out, how long, O Lord? And then he petitions the Lord to remember me and my mortality, verses 47 to 48. Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you've created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol, Salah? It's like, Lord, I'm wasting away here. I don't have much time left. Please act. Please do something. I don't understand. I don't understand how to resolve what you promised and who you are and what's happening. That leads to the next question. Where is your steadfast love and faithfulness? And remember in that first, um, that first opening four verses, that first stanza, we set out that major theme, God's faithfulness, God's steadfast love. And so I really think that this question, this cry is probably the most heartrending the most difficult. Oh Lord, where is your steadfast love of old by which, by your faithfulness, you swore to David? Where is it? What, what happened? I know who you are. I know who you were. I know what you've done. I know what you've promised. So where is that covenant love now? Where is it? Which brings him to his final petition. Remember, O oh Lord, how your servants are mocked. Now I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. And there's, there's no attempt to resolve this tension. The, the, the psalm just ends with the closing doxology. All the first three, first four books of the psalms end with a near identical doxology. Um, thus ends the third book of the psalms. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. And there it is. There's the psalm. Here's who God is. Here's the wonderful things he promised. Here's detailing them. And here's what happened. And I don't understand the end. That's Psalm 89. That is the close of this book, of the psalms. And so I just want to pause there. I, I will attempt to try to resolve some of the tension. And your, your insert is double-sided, so you can flip it over now. But I just want you to feel the weight of that. That this psalm does not attempt to resolve that tension. It just lays it out. And sometimes that can be okay. We don't always have to have the answers. Sometimes just here's who God is. Here's what he said. Here's what happened. I don't get it. Praise God. And that's where he ends it. But I do think there are some indicators both in the text and outside of the text to suggest how to resolve this tension. Um, First, looking back in faith. And that is that whoever compiled the Psalms knew what he was doing. And if book three closes with the just total ending and terminating failure of the Davidic line and covenant, Psalm 90, which opens book four, Begins and it's the only psalm of Moses in the entire book of Psalms. And that, I think, is significant. 
It's the only psalm penned by Moses, and book four itself, which has this sort of exile flavor to it, um, is heavily Moses-themed. Eight out of nine references to Moses in the entire book of Psalms occur in book four. And, And the point is this. It's the psalmist looking back and realizing, yes, right now we don't have a king. Right now we don't have a We don't have a kingdom. We don't have a temple. But we've not had those things before. Um, What what this is doing, what the arranger is doing, is after coming to Psalm 89 with its just jarring lack of resolution, the first hint at a resolution is looking back in faith, looking back to before all that and God's faithfulness. This takes us back before the monarchy before the covenant made with David, before the entrance into the land. And when we get back to that early time, we find God is still there. Many generations lived before David's time, and people in all those generations found God to be faithful and full of steadfast love. You see, God was faithful and full of steadfast love before he made any promises to David, before there was a kingdom, before there was a king. And yes, in one sense, Israel is now very much like those wandering people in the wilderness. And God was faithful then, and he can be faithful now. Another thing to look forward to, look back in hope, is looking forward in faith, and that is that the exile is not the final word. Before the exile, God had warned them of the exile. And in passages like Deuteronomy 31, he promises, I I will drive you from the land because of your sin, but I will bring you back. And one of my favorite in this regard is, is Jeremiah 31. I just want you to read this. This is just wonderful. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I've continued my faithfulness to you. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it to the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him. He will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from the hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the heights of Zion. They shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain and the wine and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning to joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priest with abundance. My people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. See, the exile isn't the final word. It's, it's not. God's not done with Israel yet. And so this discipline, as severe as it is, does not constitute the break of the covenant. It doesn't constitute the end. And it's easy for us, this side of the cross and this side of Jesus, to see all that. I just want to suggest to you that in that moment of crisis, in that moment of devastation, that was probably really hard for Ethan and others like him to wrap their head around. And next, to look forward in faith is the fulfillment in Christ. And this, of course, is the big piece in the puzzle that we see clearly that um, was not seen as clearly back in the Old Testament. Um, 2 Corinthians 1, 19 to 20 For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim to you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. Understand that all God's promises ultimately point to Jesus, and they don't exist apart from Jesus. You see, when God promised an eternal dynasty, a never-ending kingdom, well, there's two ways that that can be achieved And probably the way that Ethan and his contemporaries imagined was something like this. David would have a son, and he'd 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 have a son. World without end, amen. That is one way to have an eternal kingdom. And if you look at it that way, then what you're looking at isn't any one particular person. You're looking at that unbroken line of succession. And thus, when you see a Zedekiah get killed, when you see no Davidic king, it kind of breaks the picture. But there's also another way that you can have an eternal kingdom and an eternal throne. See, David can have a son who can have a son who can have a son, and eventually along can come a very special son. A son who doesn't die. A son who conquers death and will reign perpetually. 
In that instance, the emphasis is no longer on the unbroken chain of succession, but rather on this special son of David. And that is really the answer to the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant ultimately is about Jesus. It's ultimately about his rule. It's about his kingdom. And so from that vantage point, the particular ups and downs of any particular Davidic king or absence of a king is meaningless because it's about Jesus. It is fulfilled in Jesus. That just just wasn't terribly clear back in Ethan's time. And we see this in, in Revelation 19. Notice in this passage the appeal to the language of Psalm 2. When Jesus returns, when this Davidic son comes to claim his kingdom with a title deed to the earth in his hand, then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arranged in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress at the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And not until then, not until the Lord Jesus returns triumphant, returns victorious, returns with the title deed to the earth saying, Mine, not until then will the Davidic covenant be fulfilled. Not until then will Psalm 2 be fulfilled. It will be fulfilled. God will not break his word. God will not lie to David. God will not break his faithfulness. But the fulfillment is so much bigger and greater than anything Ethan could have imagined. That still leaves him vexed and questioning, but we see with eyes of faith how this tension gets resolved. So in our final minutes then, I just want to then turn our attention to what can we learn from this? What can we learn from this? How to apply this text What is there here for us? We don't share Ethan's vexation. We understand how Jesus fulfills the promises made to David. We understand how the end of the kingdom of Israel is a temporary setback. It's not final. We understand all that. So what do we learn from this? Three points and we are done. First, we need to learn to pray both ends of this psalm. Learn to pray both ends of this psalm. What I mean is this. If all we do is stay in and pray verses 1 to 37, the praise to God, which is great and true and wonderful, but if that's all we do, then our faith will end up shallow, superficial, and fake because we won't have any categories to deal with real pain and real suffering. We won't have any categories to deal with questioning. And we'll get this impression, and sometimes I'm sure you've met people who are like this, they they give the impression that to indicate any struggle of faith, any doubts, any anguish, any confusion is somehow to let the team down. And so no matter what type of tragedy happens, they're sort of chipper and praise God. And if that's genuine, great. But sometimes I meet people, I suspect this is sort of a learned behavior. This is what they feel they have to do. And I want you to feel free from this psalm to pour your heart out to God to to say, I don't understand. Lord, why? How long? What are you doing? Remember me. And not just to feel like all we can do is say happy, nice things. This is one of the reasons why I love songs like I Asked the Lord by John Newton. Songs that grapple with some of the harder aspects of the faith. And it shouldn't be all that we sing, but we should feel free to sing this. God wanted his people to sing this psalm to them. And not just the first half. I mean, if we were to write Christian songs, we'd be grabbing texts from the first half of this song, right? And we should be be singing songs from both halves of this psalm, not just the first half. If it stands alone, we end up shallow, superficial, and fake. Well, likewise, if all we do is camp out in 38 to 52, well, we're going to end up with an overly self-focus and ultimately have a pity party. And that's not good either. You know, we can just all be like, Lord, where are you? Lord, what are you doing? Lord, I don't understand. And so here's the thing I want you to get. If there's one big point for this Sunday, here it is. I want you, I want to learn, 
to be free to honestly pour out my confusion, honestly pour out my doubts, honestly pour out my, my struggles, my, even my anguish with what the Lord is doing. And as long as you can praise God and pray the first half of the song, feel free to pray the second. Because that's the other thing. If, if we're experiencing that vexation, I mean, I want to give some examples of what this might look like where God's promises are seen to be in conflict with what is happening. Maybe this is the, the faithful parent who's been raising their children, who's been praying for them, who's been clinging to those promises of God about raising them right, and to see them turn out to hate the Lord, to go astray. And they're just saying, Lord, well, what happened? Here's what your word said, and here's what's going on. I mean, maybe it's the faithful husband or wife who's trying to honor God, trying to be a God-honoring husband or wife, and their marriage, rather than improving, is getting worse. Or maybe it's the sickness that you've prayed for and you've, you've, you've done what James said. You've called for the elders to come and lay hands and you, you're claiming that what we believe, asking in faith, we will receive and the healing doesn't come. There's a number of circumstances I can just think of off the top of my head where what God's word says and the promises he makes and what happens can appear to be in conflict. And that's okay. You can be in that place. We've, we, godly people have been in that place. And whereas I think oftentimes there are answers, the Bible gives answers, here's a psalm without any answers. You can live in that tension, and it's okay to be there, as long as you can still praise God, like Ethan does in the first half of this psalm. Feel free to pour out your heart like he does in the second half. That's okay. Like, you're in good company. Secondly, learn to cast your burdens upon the Lord. There we go. The other temptation when we're in anguish, when we're confused, is to turn away from God to other things. And in his confusion, and in his anguish, Ethan goes back to the throne of grace. He goes back to God. He directs his song and his heart and his mind to the Lord. And he casts it upon him. Lord, I understand. You'll deal with it. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And we've got to guard in those times of doubt and trial from turning away to God, turning away from God, turning to other things. No, go back to God. Even when you don't understand, go back to God. Cast your burdens upon him, for he cares for you. Which is in 1 Peter. And third, learn to look to Christ and to trust the Lord, even when there is no answer. You know, sometimes as a pastor, I'll deal with people struggling through things, and I'm an answer guy. I like to fix things. I like to, here's what the Bible says, but there have been many times in my life, my experience and the experience of others where there is no immediate answer. I don't know what God's doing. I don't know why he's doing it. If he asked me, I wouldn't do it this way. And we still gotta turn to him. We still gotta trust him. We gotta look to Christ. We gotta find comfort and trust God to be faithful. We gotta trust that all this is working for our good, working for his glory. And one final encouragement is this. Jesus wrestled with this very same tension in his earthly ministry. Jesus wrestled with this very same temptation in his earthly ministry. I want you to consider the following passage. Let me find my note here, whatever. Matthew 27, 46. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is not theater. This is not a dramatic performance. This is the real cry of his heart. Notice also when Jesus is in anguish, where does he go to to express his grief? He goes to the Psalms. He goes to the Psalms. Our Lord wrestled with this. Why is this happening? I don't deserve this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So God is not calling us to do anything that his son has not already done and done for us. And we get a secret, an insight in how Jesus did this, how he perfectly obeyed God. In 2 Peter 2, 22 to 23, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten. So what did Jesus do? How did, how did Jesus put up with all that mistreatment? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 
He looks to God and says, you're in control, and I trust you. I don't understand why you've forsaken me, but I'll trust you. I'll trust your judgment. And, and sometimes that's all we got. I don't know why you're, what you're doing what you're doing, God. I don't know why you're letting what's happening happen, God, but I'll trust your judgment. I'll trust, I'll trust your wisdom. I'll trust that one day it'll make sense. And sometimes that's just gotta be enough. Book three of the Psalms ends with a note of despair, a note of vexation and anguish and cry. And yet amazingly, Ethan is able to write some of the highest praise and exaltation before he pours his heart out to God. And I just would pray that we would learn that lesson, that we would learn how to pray both ends of the psalm, to be able to praise God in the middle of a trial and yet feel free to pour our heart out, learn to turn to him and not away from him, and learn to look to Jesus Christ. God knows that this life is hard and filled with hard things. He knows there will be trials of faith. The Bible is so very real about this. And Psalms like Psalm 89, let us know we're not alone. And let us know, hey, it's okay. It's okay to pour your heart out. It's okay to let it all go to the Lord. As long as you can still praise him on the other side. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for who you are. Lord, we thank you that you take pity on us and sympathize with us, that you know that our walk of faith can be hard, can be difficult. And sometimes, because we don't see all that you see, we don't know what you're doing. We don't know how to reconcile what we see around us with what your word says. Lord, help us to turn to you and not from you. Help us to trust you. Help us to feel free to, to pour out our hearts to you, to cast our burdens upon you. And Lord, let us look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us look to him who walked the path that we are to walk before us, the forerunner of our faith. And is, let us follow his example, trusting you as a righteous judge. Oh, Lord God, I pray that you would encourage those here who are struggling today. I pray that you would give grace to those who are experiencing this frustration, this tension in their life. That you would turn them to you with eyes of faith. In Jesus' name, amen. We will meet back here in about 15 to 20 minutes to hear from Jai Pandey. God bless.